Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may hear this. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's edition of Bible Bites, episode 217, I believe. Uh, Isaiah chapter 36 through 41 is my reading, so it's quite a bit of reading today. So I'm going to try to make this not too, not too long, and I just want to bring out a few key points as we go through here. Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 tell us the story again. This is also found in the books of the Kings and Chronicles, but it's, it's a, uh, Isaiah is repeating that, this story. So there's obviously some very important things that we need to understand about this. Uh, we're getting into a few chapters where there's some repeats of things that we read in the history books concerning King Hezekiah. And chapter 36 and 37 speak of when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and threatened Judah and Hezekiah. And uh, it's interesting to me to see, first of all, let me point out, there is a son of Asaph here, the recorder, that this is, you know, several years after Asaph's life and time in, in the days of uh, David and Solomon. And yet Asaph's descendants are still serving God. And that's just a beautiful thing. And um, you can find out more about that in the Tabernacle of God, uh, the Tabernacle of David study, excuse me, that I've done. But I want to talk about these, um, these threats that come from the king of Assyria. And he is a type of the devil here, in a sense. We can see a picture of Satan and the operation of his kingdom of darkness, in a sense. And so you'll notice that in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 36, the king of Assyria here is, uh, is a type of the devil. And notice how he comes to them. In these verses, we'll read, we'll find out. First, he comes with a challenge to their confidence, a question that makes or to make them doubt what they believe and what they stand in. Second, he derides and rejects the, their confidence, again, to shake them from believing. And he talks about how in verse 5, that the things that they're believing in, the, the words that they're believing, they are mere words, he says. So this is how the devil operates. The third, third thing we notice is that they question the person in whom they trust thinking that it's a mere human, because they're talking about just the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Oh, well, don't trust in, in him. He's not going to deliver you. And so, you know, they, they don't realize that the children of Israel and Hezekiah trust in a much greater power, not just a human being. Fifth, they say, oh, well, surrender to us and we'll give you something in return. That's in verse 8. That reminded me of when Satan tempted Jesus about the kingdoms and so forth. Then sixth, the, the Sennacherib's spokesperson even tries to deceive them into thinking that this attack is from God. He comes in verse 10 and he says, the Lord told me to come and attack you. So all of these things are lies. If you'll remember yesterday, we read in Isaiah 32 verse 7, about how the devil tries to destroy people, how? With lies, lying words. And so these taunts are designed to shake them and to make them afraid. 
In verse 11 and so on, he tries to shake their confidence and the confidence of all the people as well. But the Assyrians, their problem was they underestimated the living God. I want to read to you verse 18 of chapter 36. And show you how they underestimated God. It says, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, he's saying here, you know, the, the taunt here from the enemy is no other God. He's just like all the other gods. And we, we, they can't stand against us. Against us. They haven't been able to deliver. Who is this God you serve that's any better than all of the other gods of the people? He tried to put God, the living God of Israel, on the same level as idols. And that does not work. That does not work. But notice here what Hezekiah had instructed them. In verse 21, it says, but they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Beloved, sometimes there's wisdom in silence. In just being still and not answering the devil's taunts. You take it to God. Hallelujah. You go to God. Find out God's word on the subject. In chapter 37, we see that that's exactly what they did. Now, in verse 1, we see that it was a distressing word. They were upset about it. They, they, Hezekiah was upset about it. He tore his clothes. I mean, it was a frightful word. It was a distressing word. But notice what he does. In verse 2, he sends messengers to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, I want to hear what God has to say. I need a word from God. In that day, that was done through the prophets. The prophets stood in the place of God and delivered. When there was a word from the Lord, it was through the mouth of the prophet. In that day, today, we can go directly to God in prayer and get his word. And it will always line up with his written word, his logos. So Hezekiah sends to Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah, I need to know what God has to say about this. This is what the king of Assyria is saying in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 36. That's all of his words. That's what he's saying. He's trying to taunt us. He's trying to shake our confidence. He's trying to scare us into disbelieving that God's our God and God's fighting with us. He says, but I got to know what God says on the subject. And so he goes to, uh, he sends to Isaiah his written word. Most of the time it will come directly from his written word. And it will be a rhema word for you in that due season. And when you get that, when you hear from God, that's the word you stand on in faith, believing and declaring. You stand on the word of the Almighty God in whatever mandate or whatever situation it is. So even though he was weakened by the news, he needed God's word on the subject. 
And then God's word, God gives him the word. In verse 6, it says this, And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. Here it comes. Here's the word. Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Oh, they picked the wrong person to fight with. Oh, no. God's name was at stake. God's honor was at stake. Oh, you better believe God was going to join in and take care of this situation. And God said, don't even be afraid of them. I'm going to handle this. And that's his word on the matter. And that settles it. When you get God's word on the matter, that settles it. Period. 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 And we keep on speaking that word. We keep on believing that word in faith even if we have to go to our grave believing it. That's what some of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 did. It said that they, not all of them received the fulfillment of that promise in their lifetime, but they went to their grave believing it because they saw it afar off. That's the way faith works. Hallelujah. So then in chapter 37, the enemy didn't give up. You know, eight through verse 8 through 13, he kept on taunting them. He kept on trying to bring them down with lies. But notice in verse 14, Hezekiah takes their letter that they wrote, spreads it out before the Lord, and he prays an awesome prayer in verse 15 through 20. I wish I had the time to read it to you. But he appeals to God for the honor of God's name. Beloved, we need to be living our lives and caring about the honor of God's name. It was the honor of God's name that was at stake. It was far more than just an attack against people. They were blaspheming God. They were trying to say, what other God has delivered us? Your God ain't no better than them. No, this was an attack against God's honor. This was an attack against God's name. And he could not, would not let that slide. And Hezekiah appeals to him on that basis. He says, God, your honor's at stake here. Come through for us. Save and deliver us. And beginning in verse 21, for many verses, God gives a response, a powerful word of response for you to read. But I want you to notice this, that it says this in verse 21. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me, against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And that caught me today because Hezekiah had not gone to fear and worry and all that other stuff, had not tried to suit up and say, okay, well, we can handle this. Let's go. Let's go. Let's fight them. They've attacked us. We're going to go out. No, he went to God. He said, God, you handle this. This is your honor. I appeal to you. You're the living God. Come through for me. Let me hear you. And God's response was, because you came to me, instead of trusting in yourself or others, you came to me, then I'm going to answer you. And he gave him a beautiful, powerful answer here. As a matter of fact, in verse 23, this is a scathing rebuke against Assyria. He picked the wrong person to fight with on that day. Verse 23, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. 
That was God's scathing rebuke against the king of Assyria. Hallelujah. And God was going to come through. And he did. Hallelujah. God's word settles the question every time. And the Lord himself decided he was going to get in this battle. And in verse 36, it says that God himself fought. It says that an angel of the Lord, some may believe that that was the angel of the Lord, possibly the Lord Jesus himself pre-incarnate. Maybe it was an angel. We don't know. But whoever it was, God did the fighting and God brought the victory. 185,000 killed in one night by one person, one angel. Hallelujah. God was going to see to it. Praise God. In chapter 38, Hezekiah is sick and he cries out to God. God extends his life here. You can read that also in uh, 2 Kings chapter 20. And he prays to God and God uh, extends his life in this chapter. And then in verse 9 through 20, I loved it because this was Hezekiah's testimony and his praise to God. But I just wanted to point out verse 15 of that. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Hezekiah is saying here, God both says things, but then he does what he says. He is, he answers and he does what he says he will do. And so then Hezekiah says, I'm going to walk deliberately. I'm going to move slowly. I'm going to redeem the time. I'm going to be careful, sober, and diligent. This word is used one other place in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm chapter 42, verse 4, when it talks about how they went, is translated went in that verse, remembering trips to the house of God for worship and having a hunger for God. So to me, this gives meaning to this passage that we will walk softly. We will be deliberate about pursuing God, hungering for him, and being deliberate and careful with how we live our lives, redeeming each day. Praise God. What a beautiful thought and what a beautiful word that is, that we would walk carefully. Hallelujah. In chapter 39, we find out about Hezekiah's downfall here. This was where he really screwed up. And in his additional 15 years that God gave him, he, he gave Judah one of their very worst kings, if not the worst, and that was Manasseh. But he also kind of got, I don't know if he got proud, if he uh, succumbed to flattery or what it was, but he, he gets these visitors from Babylon. And so he's, you know, they're praising him and they're being kind to him. And so he goes around and he shows them everything, everything takes them into the house of God, shows them all the gold and all the treasures there and everything. And Isaiah warns him then, when Isaiah finds out about it, Isaiah prophesies and he says, they're going to come and take you captive, your, your descendants. And he even talks about how some of your descendants, they're going to make eunuchs. We see that fulfilled in Daniel chapter 1 because Daniel was known to be um, one of the descendants of Hezekiah. And so that was fulfilled literally of Hezekiah's descendants. But then notice Hezekiah's words. He says, oh, well, at least there'll be peace and truth in my days. Oh, beloved, may we never fall to that level. And Hezekiah was a great king, but boy, he sure screwed up in some of these, his last days. 
because we need to care about the generation coming behind us. I'm not content for there to be peace and blessing just for me. Oh no, I want it for my children. I want it for my grandchildren. I want it for grandchildren and great-grandchildren I'll never meet perhaps in this life. I want the blessing of the Lord to carry forward to all of my family in Jesus' name. May it be so. And then in chapter 40, we read here in verse 3 through 5 at least, possibly some other verses speak to this as well, but definitely in chapter 40, verse 3 through 5, this foretells John the Baptist in Isaiah 40. And John the Baptist knew that this was his life scripture. Now, I believe that there can be life scriptures. I remember when, uh, when a couple of my grandchildren were born, the Lord immediately gave me a life scripture for both of them, for, for some of those. And I have tried to instill that into them and tried to share that word with them so that they know that's their life scripture when they are grown. And I believe that's what Elizabeth and Zacharias did with John when he was even just a baby. I don't know how much longer in his life that they lived because they were old when he was born. But I know that somehow it was imparted to him that this was his life scripture. And then whenever he's asked, okay, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Who are you? And what does he say? He says, I am the voice of one crying in a wilderness. He goes back and he quotes his life scripture. And we know that this is speaking of John the Baptist here, and it's confirmed in the New Testament. And so, beloved, maybe you have a life scripture. I know I do. And, you know, God can give you a life scripture. God can give you life scripture for your children or your grandchildren, perhaps, and, and pour that into them. Pour that into them so they know who they are in Christ and who they are in God. And so John had that foundation and he knew who he was. Verse 6, I found it interesting because, you know, maybe John even questioned himself and he says, well, what am I supposed to cry out? You know, this, we know that 3 through 5 is speaking of John. So he says, the voice said, cry out. And he says, well, what, what, what should I cry out? And then the next few verses maybe are what John was supposed to say. I do believe that all the way through verse 8 at least is testifying of the kind of ministry and some of perhaps the word and the testimony and the message that John would have in his ministry, especially at the end of verse 8 when it says, uh, no, I'm sorry, but the word of our God stands forever. That's true as well. But it's the end of verse 9, excuse me. He says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Because when we come to the New Testament, we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist points to Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is showing them, he is pointing to the God, their God. Behold your God. And so he's fulfilling even this verse in that passage. Hallelujah. Then beginning in verse 12, we have a powerful description of God and his superiority. I love this. In verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? In other words, who can take all of the oceans, all of the lakes, all of the rivers, 
and put them in and cup them in the palm of his hand. Who can do that? That has to be a powerful God with a powerful big hand. That's what he's saying here. He's asking rhetorically, who's measured heaven with a span? Who can take from their thumb to the end of their little finger and measure all the way across the entire heavens? And it could even be talking about the outer space heavens here, the universe. Even if it wasn't, even if it's talking about the sky above the earth, can you imagine? Who can do that? Who can calculate the dust of the earth in a measure? In other words, who can take all of the sand and all of the dirt and all of the clay from the entire earth and put it in a little uh, teacup or something? Who can, who can do that? Who can weigh the mountains in scales and the hill in a balance? Who can do that? It's a powerful description of the living God who is superior above all and all things. Hallelujah. He goes on down in verse 25 and 26. And he says, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Oh, there's no one equal to God. There's no one like Him. No one like Him. No one like Him. Hallelujah. And then in verse 26, he talks about how he, he sets out all the stars in the sky, all the host of them, and he knows every one of them by name. And not one of them is missing, he says. Hallelujah. This is your great God. This is my great God. This is the God of every believer in Jesus Christ, every Christian. This is our God. He is great and mighty. And he ends that chapter beginning in verse 27 through 31, talking about how this great God, sometimes it might seem like we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting on him to answer us. Sometimes we might wonder and question, does this great God really hear me? Does he really care about me? Is he going to answer me? And so you find that in verse 27 through 31. But then in verse 31, it's a very familiar verse. But those who wait on the Lord, that word wait means to wait in faith, knowing that he's going to answer me, having confidence that he hears me, confidence that he loves me, and confidence that he will meet my need and he will come through. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. This great God he's just described will come through for his people, but he'll do it in his time and in his way. And so the call to us is to wait in faith, continuing to believe him that he will work. Hallelujah. Chapter 41 may be even prophetic about Jesus' second coming and possibly the events and the things that will be said and done even at that time. But I want to read verse 10 and verse 13. Fear not, for I am with you. This is God talking, and maybe you need to hear this today. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then he goes on in verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Hallelujah. Beloved, I just believe in my spirit that that is for someone that's hearing this today. Receive the word of the Lord and let it change you and let it strengthen you. Grab hold of his word. Believe him for it and stand in faith, waiting in faith, because you will be strengthened and you will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and not be weary. You will walk and not faint because your God is holding your right hand and upholding you and with you through it all. I pray that this has been a blessing to you today. Lord willing, we will be back every day with Bible Bites by God's grace. Lord willing, and I hope you can join us again in a future episode. God bless you today in Jesus' name.